Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. You doing good today? You're looking good. My name's Mike, and I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today to close out our series, First Comes Love, Then Comes Baggage, by talking about one of the inescapable realities of marriage that often comes from our baggage and adds a whole lot more to it, conflict. I want to talk about how to fight fair. One of my favorite authors of all time, John Steinbeck, once said, if you find yourself in a fair fight, your tactics stink. Never fight fair. And uh, he's right if your goal in fighting is to win against somebody else. But if perhaps your goal is to win with somebody against the things that would break you down, tear you apart, and rob you of the beauty God says you are made for, then a fair fight matters. And as we kick things off this morning, I just want to jump straight into some wisdom from the Bible, specifically for you guys out there. Proverbs 27, 15 says, A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Can I get an amen? Like a nagging, angry, grumpy, critical wife is just like drip, 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 and it never stops and it drives you nuts. But ladies, I don't want you to feel left out, so I got one for you too. It is better to eat rotten fish in the desert than to live with a husband who's a huge jerk. That's from 2 Mike 4.13, and if you're like, I never heard of 2 Mike, that's all right, I made it up. But just because it's not in the Bible doesn't make it any less true. Sometimes husbands are huge jerks, sometimes wives are quarrelsome, and sometimes in marriage we fight. 90% of those times it's about something real dumb. Like Back in the early days of our marriage, Jenny and I once got into a big fight about whether it's okay to eat peanut butter straight from the jar as long as you don't double dip. And if you're thinking that was probably just a simple little tiny disagreement, it was not. Oh, it was not. And 17 years later, she's still wrong about it. If I only dip once, peanut butter should not require some sort of third-party delivery apparatus to make it into my mouth. This is a hill I will die on. Like in marriage, we fight and it's inevitable sometimes to disagree no matter how happy we are and and how good of a match we are together. And one of the beauties of marital fighting is that it's open 24-7. There's like no time where you can't do it. A while back, we got in a fight at 2 a.m. We woke up to get into this fight. One of the twins came into our room with a bloody nose, and so we got him a tissue and calmed him down, and then Jenny asked me to go lay with him, and I said, I don't think that'll stop the bleeding. I didn't go to doctor school, but I'm pretty sure the only medically significant difference me laying in his bed will make is that I'll wake up with a sore back. And apparently, stopping the bleeding wasn't the point or something like that. I don't know. Like, let's be honest, conflict is unavoidable in the weird process of two lives becoming one. And so what I'm not going to do today is give you this, like, list of 13 tips and tricks to avoid all fighting in marriage. There might be some blogs out there that'll make that list for you, but I think that's completely useless for a couple reasons. Number one, you're not going to remember all the life hacks in the heat of the moment when you're furious. You're going to be like, oh, 
You know what? Number eight on that internet article I read four years ago said I can skip right over this fight if I just take a deep breath. <sighs> Come on, it's not happening. And number two, conflict is just a part of marriage. John Gottman's one of the leading counselors, researchers, and authors about marriage in America. And he says, in marriage, if you're never arguing, then you're either not communicating or not committed. You're either not committed enough to pulling in the same direction together to even fight about it because you're going to go your own way no matter what, or you're too scared to be honest about the way you feel and so you just don't say anything at all. I think a lot of people are in that boat in relationships, especially because of our societal idea that love is just this warm, fuzzy feeling of affection. And we've repeatedly talked over the course of this series about how love that lasts isn't butterflies in your stomach, it's a decision of the will to live a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. And when you understand that, it allows you to do marriage differently. Because look, if love and your understanding of it is all about happy feelings, you have to avoid fights at all costs. You just kind of fake your way around them so that somebody else's feelings toward you don't change. But when you understand that love that allows a marriage to flourish is not emotion-based, it allows you to do conflict in a completely different way. And there are some good ways to do that and a whole lot of bad ways to do that. And I want to dig into that this morning so that we can get a bigger, better understanding of how to fight in marriage. We're not going to talk about if we fight, we're going to talk about how we fight because no matter how wonderful your marriage is, there will always be things about it you wish were different. That's part of being in a human relationship. Like every single one of us, whether we are married, we were married, or we hope to be married someday, all of us walk into marriage with a set of hopes and dreams and desires. We have these ideas about the way things are going to be. And the older you are, the more time you've spent thinking about it. But even in middle school, we kind of plot out the future. You just write down the names of the four cutest boys in class and play MASH. Like, I don't actually have any idea whether the youths today still play that, but every middle-aged person in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. Before YouTube, we had to do dumb things to entertain ourselves. And just like, okay, oh, you're going to be a waitress who lives in a shack and has seven kids and is married to Joey. (laughs) Whatever it looks like, we all have these ideas about, like, where we're going to live and what we're going to drive and how much money we're going to make and what she will or won't wear to bed and who's going to do what chore and how many kids we're going to have. And the list of our expectations goes on and on. But the problem so many married people run into is that after the wedding, we have this sense deep down that we are owed all of our expectations. And so we throw the weight of them onto some other person. And it's a pretty heavy weight for them to carry. But we end up negotiating, trading, establishing these quid pro quos like, I'll do that for you if you do this for me. I'll make the bed every morning if you have a hot meal waiting for me every evening. And the problem with sacralizing our expectations, with putting them up on some sort of a pedestal, is that it causes our relationships to pretty quickly deteriorate into the transactional. You have to do this. You owe me this because husbands are supposed to. Wives are are supposed to. You married me, so now you've incurred the debt of everything I think you ought to do. This is the heartbeat of marital conflict. 
Every fight, every disagreement, every name that gets called overlays an expectation. And the worst part is some of those expectations are unspoken. And some of those expectations are subconscious. Often, they don't know because we never told them. And occasionally, we don't even know because we're not aware of what's going on inside us. But it's important to understand that every time we fight and scream and yell and call names or every time we put up walls and step back and hold a hand up to relationship, that's basically a way of saying, hey, the problem here is I am not getting what I want. And if we don't understand that that's what's beneath all of this, it actually sets us up to struggle in marriage because we can't recognize or receive love even when it's being shown to us since we think the actions that show it are owed to us. It's kind of like this. If you owe me $100 and we're hanging out and I say, hey, I'm kind of short on cash right now, you can't gift me 50 bucks. You can't be like, oh, because I love you, I'm going to generously hand you this $50 bill. I'm not going to see that through the lens of your love and generosity. You're repaying what you owe me, or like half of what you owe me. I cannot see the $50 through a lens of love, care, or generosity if it's owed to me. And in a similar way, I cannot see the countless things my wife does for me and our family every single day through the lens of love if I think she owes them to me. So the thing about expectation is when we begin to see the actions of someone else through the debt we've decided they owe our own selfish desires, it cuts us off from seeing, understanding, receiving, or giving love, and it's tragic, but it's tragically common in a whole lot of marriages. And so what I want to do today isn't give us a list of, of ideas to help us fight better. It's to give us an entirely different lens that hopefully allows us to argue from a completely different perspective. And we're going to get that new lens by looking at one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples before he was arrested and killed. And so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, you can open it up to the book of John chapter 13. As you're looking, it's sandwiched between Luke and Acts, which just as an aside is a really dumb place for it to be because Luke and Acts are two parts of this long letter Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus to explain the life of Jesus and the movement of Jesus and why they shoved John in the middle. I'll never understand, but that's a pastor rant. <laughs> like, that's where it is. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen. And if you need one or your kids do, they're free at the Next Steps table. They're our gift to you. Please take one before you leave today. But a little bit of background. Right before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he got his disciples together to celebrate Passover and have one last meal together. And he said something to them at that meal that was so ridiculous, so off the wall shocking, that a bunch of good Jewish boys probably should have left the room. He said, a new command I give to you. Well, time out. Only God is allowed to give commands. That's a core principle of Judaism. And God had already given commands through the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And the disciples were the, these good Jewish boys who understood you could write about and you can think about and you can talk about and you can teach about the commands of God, but you can't add to the commands. Only God gets to add to the commands. And so when Jesus is like, hey, here's a command, they should have been on alert, but it was a pretty weird night already. 
Like he kicked things off by washing their feet, which creeped him out a little. And then he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which creeped him out even more. And then Judas left to run an errand. And there's like, oh man, I don't know what's going on. So Jesus looks at him, Jesus who happened to be God in the flesh with us and said, a new command I give you, love one another. And they're all like, oh, that's not new. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm not through. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you is a whole different level of loving. That's like love cranked to 11 and is basically the marching orders he left the disciples with before his arrest and crucifixion. And every single one of them could have gone around the room like one by one and talked about the stories they had of the ways Jesus loved them. I mean, he could have pointed to him and been like, Matthew, remember when everybody hated you because you were a traitor who was robbing your own people and paying off the Roman Empire as a tax collector? But I didn't hate you. I invited you in and I came to your house. Nathaniel, this is a less famous Bible story, but it's in there. Remember right before we met when the guys were kind of telling you about me and you heard I was from Nazareth? And like Nazareth was like the Detroit of ancient Israel, okay? He's like, Nathaniel, remember when they told you that and you said, Ugh, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And basically insulted me and my parents and my whole family. Remember that, Nate? I mean, every one of them had a story of how Jesus had shown them love, but none of those stories compared to the story they'd have a few days later after they watched him give up his life and die and then rise again and had the aha moment of realizing loving like Jesus loves means being willing to lay down your life because his love is bigger than life. And here's the deal, from that moment forward, like everything in the church, the entire New Testament, everything Paul wrote and James wrote and John wrote and Luke wrote and Matthew wrote and Mark wrote was built on the idea that the entire 600 plus set of commands in the Old Testament could be boiled down into a simple principle. We are to love the way that he has loved us. And for married people in the room, I want us to start seeing each other through this lens. And good news, if you're not married, this is actually a lens Jesus gives to all of his followers. And it's applicable to every single relationship in our lives. But married people, if we're going to fight well and fight fair, we got to start living through this lens. My job is to love my spouse the way Jesus loves me. I actually made a covenant to do that. When I promised my life to her, to him, I decided I was going to love the way my Savior loves me. And so I got to look out in the beautiful moments when it's easy, but also in the difficult, frustrating moments when it seems like an impossible task. I got to look out at this life we're building together through this lens. My job is to love my spouse the way Jesus loves me. I don't know, some of you might hear that right now. You're thinking, like Jesus loves me, Mike. Jesus died for me. Yeah, he did. And here's the deal. I think only when we're willing to sacrifice, like not because we want to, we will rarely, if ever, want to, but because it's beautiful and good and it allows us to experience a deeper reality than we could have possibly imagined on our own. Only when we're willing to sacrifice to the point that we consider someone else more important to us than we are to ourselves will we ever experience the depth of love God meant for us to experience in marriage because that's loving like Jesus loves.
And it completely transforms the way we do disagreement. There are a couple things about who Jesus is and how Jesus did conflict that I want us to see this morning because I think they're transformational as we understand how to do it well in relationship with one another. And the first one is this. Jesus loved people enough to point out what was broken in them and then stand with them against that rather than against them because of it. He wasn't shy about confrontation ever. Jesus regularly pointed to the grossest, worst, nastiest stuff inside people's souls. But then he didn't reject them or hate them or curse them or distance himself from them because of that nasty stuff. Instead, what he did was invited them to remove that from their lives and step into the fullness of their created purpose. And he stood with them along the journey. He fought for them so that they could get there. Because if we did that in marriage, it'd be revolutionary. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. Marriage is often an uncomfortable mirror that reveals things that you were blind to and things about you you just desperately wish weren't a part of you. Like I had no idea almost two decades ago how much I would learn about the ugliness in me because I got married. I knew Jenny was imperfect. Oh, I knew that. And I knew marriage would reveal even more of her imperfections. I knew I was imperfect too. And so there'd be some things here and there that we disagreed about. But I never could have imagined how my frustration with her would reveal the deep selfishness in me. And would also reveal the baggage of some bad ideas that were alive inside my soul. Ideas like, I am loved only because I perform. I'll never be loved unconditionally. I need to earn every inch. And and real men never show vulnerability. She would rather watch me die as the white knight upon my horse than see me fall off it. Like, I didn't know before I got married that that stuff was like in here, but it is. And I could have never anticipated how angry and hurt I would be when the mirror of my marriage reflected light onto some of that baggage I had been keeping in the dark. Why did I feel that way? In part because my pride was wounded, but in part because I was scared and sometimes still am that Jenny would be against me because of my junk rather than with me against it. That's real. That's real. I was talking about this idea with a friend uh, as I was preparing for this series and even thinking about this message on how to fight fair. And he's just smarter than me about this stuff and gave me some really profound words. He said, our spouses can become our tormentors because the very nature of marriage means that they have access to the deepest places in our soul where we are completely vulnerable. And when they're in there, they can hit where we hurt. Sometimes unintentionally and accidentally, but every time it happens, they activate insecurity and pain we might not even have known we had. And then it's easy to get angry and blame them for for making us feel that way. And so we call names and we scream and we fight or we step back and we cut off and we remove ourselves from them relationally. But there's another way. There's another way. See, if we can learn to actually love each other like Jesus does, to actually side with each other rather than siding against each other because of the brokenness that lives in us, there's another way. 
we can actually react with gratitude when that mirror shines light on dark places because we realize that outside of the intimacy and the depth of that connection, light may never have shone in that dark place. And we would have had to keep walking through life unaware of some of the baggage we were carrying that was weighing us down and some of the hurt we were carrying that needed to be healed. The mirror is a gift. It's a gift. And if we're willing to sacrificially love one another the way Jesus has loved us, then we can drag the ugly things out into the light with one another and for one another. And we can fight together against those things rather than fighting against one another because those things affect us negatively. This is a whole different way to do conflict when we're willing to humbly, sacrificially love each other the way Jesus loves us. Our spouses are going to poke at us sometimes. But when we do it the way Jesus does it, we're able to speak for our pain, not from our pain. Like instead of saying, I hate it so much when you interrupt me, you're such a self-absorbed jerk all the time. We can say, You know what, whenever you interrupt me, it activates this thing in me that feels like my feelings and my thoughts and my perspective and my words don't matter and it's painful and it's frustrating. We're still hurt, right? But when we're loving like Jesus loves, when we're fighting like Jesus fights, we can speak for our pain, not from our pain. And we can embrace the beauty of the light, the mirrors shining on the dark places inside our souls. That's a game changer. It's a game changer. The second thing I want us to see this morning about how Jesus did conflict kind of relates to how he fought on a cosmic scale. Jesus created humanity. He dreamed us up, knit us together, breathed life into our nostrils, and then we rejected him and ran away and shattered all of creation in the process which means the creator had every right to destroy us, to come and fight against us, but that's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus loved us enough to join us, to step out of his rightful place in eternity into the thread of the human story and be with us. And instead of fighting against us because of all the brokenness that caused him pain, caused the people around us pain, caused the entire world pain, Jesus joined us in the fight against that ugly stuff in our souls that was destroying us and robbing us of life. He laid down his life so we could be forgiven and set free. He met us right where we were because that's what we needed and we couldn't have fought that fight alone. So what does it look like in marriage to love like Jesus loves? Well, it might just mean leaving where we are and meeting our spouse right where they are and joining them, fighting with and for them against all the destructive stuff that threatens to tear us apart. I've mentioned this before, but maybe the best marriage tip I ever got came from my friend Michael. He was one of my youth leaders growing up, and we were in Seattle because my best friend from high school, Ryan, was getting married, and the three of us were golfing the day before the wedding, and Ryan said, all right, what's the best piece of advice you guys got for me? And Michael didn't miss a beat. He said, oh, it's easy. When you fight, not if you fight, when you fight, you need to look at each other and ask and honestly answer this question. Are you moving toward me or away from me right now? Are you moving toward me or away from me right now? 
Because you're going to have disagreements. Those are natural and necessary inside a marriage. But you got to understand, is this about me winning against you? Or is this about us winning against this thing that's driving us apart? And Michael said, look, man, marriage isn't like golf or football or any other sport or war. It's not a winner and a loser ever because there is no me anymore. There's just we. In marriage, there are either two winners or two losers. You win together or you lose together. There is no third way. There is no third way. And so I think even when it feels like losing, you got to move to the place your spouse is and go pull in the same direction together. If you do that, again, even when it feels like losing because you're, you're compromising what you wanted and, and you're giving in a little bit or what you thought you wanted, if you do that, you'll win. And if you pull in opposite directions, you will lose. You will lose every single time. But the truth is marriage sometimes feels like a tug of war. It does. Like you got two people with their own opinions and their own thoughts and their own ideas thinking, oh, I got to win. I got to win. I got to get what I want. If I don't win this one, if I don't get my way this time, then I'm going to have to spend my life settling for something less than the life that I want. But the thing about tug of war, you guys, is usually both sides end up dirty and exhausted. Okay, last time I played was at my kid's field day in school. A few years ago, I played Mike versus Emma's entire first grade class. And I lost. I got smoked. And I was dirty. My shoes got dirty. So I was mad. Right? But then I paused and thought about it. And I realized, you know what? There were really only two options here. Either I lose and I get muddy. Or I win. And there's a trail of crying, muddy seven-year-olds. And I'm a huge turd. <laughs> like That right there is what you call a lose-lose situation. The only way I could have won at that field day was to drop the rope and just not play. And I'm telling you, in marriage, I know it's scary. I know it is, because you don't want to be the one who drops it first. What if they don't drop it? What, what in the world? What if, what, if, what if they keep pulling? What if, what if they get your, their way and you don't get yours? How in the world could you do that? How could you self-sacrificially drop the rope? Well, you could do it like Jesus did. When God dropped the rope and came to where you were with absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that you would reciprocate his actions or return his love. But he did it anyway because that's what love looks like. Love looks like sacrifice. Love looks like selflessness. And so the question for every married person in the room today is, will you drop the rope? I really believe there is no hope till you drop the rope. Until you're willing to self-sacrificially say, I commit myself to pulling in the same direction as you. So I think if those of us who are married don't start seeing marriage through that lens, and those of us who want to be married don't walk into that marriage through that lens, then conflict will always be something that threatens our intimacy and robs our futures. Because it's just so easy to get caught up in this self-centered flow of our culture where we grasp for our hopes and our dreams and our desires at the expense of another person. And we do it because it's easy to convince ourselves that's the only way to get what we want. But here's my question. Sometimes is the way we fight not a pathway to what we want, but actually a pathway that 
leads us away from what we want? Stan McKee is my favorite hockey player of all time. Leading point scorer in Blackhawks history. He broke into the league as an incredibly talented teenager in 1958, but he was a scrapper. Any perceived slight against him or one of his teammates and Stan the man would drop the gloves and go at it. And at one point in his career, Makita was averaging 119 penalty minutes a season until his eight-year-old kid asked him a question that stopped him dead in his tracks. Daddy, how can you score goals when you're always in the penalty box? The next two seasons, Makita served 12 and 14 penalty minutes respectively, and by some stroke of complete coincidence, I'm sure, he led the league in scoring both years, won two MVP awards, and won two Lady Bing trophies for showing the best sportsmanship in the league. Like, fighting felt right. It felt justified. It felt like the way to get what he wanted, and it was hockey. No one was blaming him, but eventually Stan the Man realized that there was a greater victory to be won that an even bigger goal could be achieved by dropping the rope. Like as we do this crazy thing of taking two lives and two stories and knitting them together into one, if we can realize that the greater victory is not in getting our way, but in giving ourselves away, if we can love the people around us the way Jesus has loved us, it will change the way we disagree and it will allow the inevitable conflicts up ahead of us to be opportunities not to accumulate more baggage but to release baggage as we grow in love together. You guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the way you loved us. Thank you for not fighting against us but fighting for us, for joining us by stepping into the thread of the human story and giving everything so we could be forgiven and set free. Lord, may we be a people May we be a community that loves each other like that, that loves our spouses like that, that loves our kids like that, that loves our friends and our neighbors and our church like that, and that loves all the people we crash into every day who are desperate to breathe the oxygen of your love like that. Lord, could we love the way that you have loved us? Would you work through that love to transform our hearts and our lives and our relationships in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.